Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to support the Box of Oddities, we would be eternally grateful. Become a premium subscriber. Go to theboxofoddities.com and get signed up. You will get ad-free episodes. You'll get them a day early. You'll get a bonus episode every month. And you'll get access to the Box of Oddities back channel. Direct contact to us. And we appreciate it so much. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So I was watching this interview with David Sedaris, and I know you love David Sedaris. I do. Humorist, essayist, author, um, hilarious guy. And he was talking about how he has no tolerance for small talk. It's like when you're at the grocery store, how are you? Hey, how about that weather? Sure is cold outside. Mm. He says that's boring. He can't play that game. So what he tries to do whenever he's out in public is knock people off balance with unusual questions. And, and sometimes they lead to very interesting conversations. And ultimately, he has something to write about. For example, he asked one woman one day, just out of the blue, when was the last time you touched a monkey? And her response was, oh, can you smell it on me? And as it turns out, she worked with primates and that led to a whole conversation and an invitation for him to go and hang out with monkeys all day. Which is really pretty amazing. And so I think I'm going to ask everyone like, hey, do you have any monkey ins yes, from now on? From now on. Yeah. So I thought that's kind of cool. That's a that's a great experiment. So I decided to come up with my own bizarre questions and just ask some random stranger that question. I was at the grocery store yesterday. I'm standing in line. And there's a woman who is just bored checking out groceries, as one would be. Of course. And uh, she, co- I get up to the front of the line. She says, hi, how are you today? And I said, great. What kind of car do you think Harriet Tubman would have driven? And she paused for a moment. And she said, huh, who's Harriet Tubman? Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. So I was, I, I thought, well, okay, you have to pick your targets. You know. I do uh, really enjoy this this thought process, though, and it really does kind of make you 
whirl some things around in your head. Yeah. Like my first consideration is seating capacity. Sure. Like that just makes sense to me. Of course. Um, like 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 maybe a Dodge Ram 2500 with a crew cab. No, I would think more like a VW bus. Okay. Or that, something like that. Sure, sure, that's good. Or maybe a, a, like an RV. That could be, yeah, sure. Like a class A. Yeah, that seems a little conspicuous though. Certainly in the 1860s. Absolutely. It, it, it would be. Plus, what kind of traction do you get? You know, maybe she needs a four-wheel drive vehicle. Oh, that's an interesting point, too. You know, so she can make that getaway. Well, it's uh, definitely something to ponder. Yes, it is. Any hoozle, what you got for me? I wanted to transport you back to 1930. We're going to talk today about Mary Agnes Maroney. Catherine and Michael Maroney uh, were married. Catherine was 13 years old. And uh, four years later, they had two daughters. We haven't talked about this, right? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, no. good. <laughs> Take a deep breath. You're okay. So. You didn't check the spreadsheet, did you? I did. Oh, you did? I did. Okay, well. But it didn't work last time. So. <laughs> so it's 1930, and they have two daughters, uh, Mary Agnes, who is two, and Anastasia, who is 11 months. Now, at the beginning of the 1930s, more than 15 million American uh, families are, are out of work. One quarter of all wage-earning workers unemployed. Yeah, that's incredible to think of. It is, really. And um, they were very poor, but Michael was earning some money. Um, he was passing out handbills for $15 per week. Really, that's pretty um, good money during the depression. Considering that so many others were just flat out, he was working um, when and as he could, uh, but it still wasn't really mm. making it. So there's some mixed information about who posted an advertisement in a uh, column in the newspaper seeking help for his family. Some sources say that Michael posted it asking for help for his own family. And some say that it was a relative of Catherine's family uh, that wrote the needy services or needy family service and uh, posted a paragraph basically about their situation and how they needed assistance. So a paragraph on their plight was printed and uh, normally, the service, uh, which this did happen quite often, uh, normally they did not disclose addresses, but there was some sort of slip, and the Maroney's address was learned. Okay, so this was a service that was available during the Depression, mm -hmm. where they would, uh, this organization would publish brief biographies about families in need. Yeah. Okay. And then you. if you could uh, help or you wanted to assist, uh, you could reach out to the service and and then they would pass that help along. Okay. And I don't know exactly the maneuvering of it, mm -hmm. but your address wasn't supposed to be posted. However, something did happen and someone did learn their address. So on May 14th, 1930, Catherine was scrubbing the floor, and there was a knock at the door. Um, she opened the door. She was greeted by a woman who was described as well-dressed, about 22 years of age. Um, she had protruding teeth, but a very cultured voice. She called herself Julia Otis, and she said she was sent by a social worker named Mrs. Henderson to deal with the Moroni's case. She's got protruding teeth like, you mean like, like buck teeth? Like or a little buck teeth, Okay. Yeah. She was probably an alien hybrid, right? Is that where the story's going? Oh, no, not even a little. All right. So she listened to 
Catherine tell the the tale of their family and, um, you know, to understand what was going on with the family. And um, she kind of unexpectedly asked if she could take Mary Agnes to California with her. What? She said she would bring her back fat as a butterball. I'm assuming that she means like a round scoop of butter rather than the uh, small sea duck. Uh, that is often referred to as a butterball. Or a um, turkey. Or a turkey. Mm. I don't think butterball turkey was a thing then. Okay. Catherine was like, no, you can't take my kid. Um, but the stranger, Julia Otis, was like, that's cool. I'm still here to help. She gave Catherine $2 and then she left. So the next day, it's May 15th, and the woman returns, and she's got baby clothes, and um, Catherine's pregnant with another baby, so she's bringing her uh, things for her, uh, I I wanted to say oncoming baby, but I don't think that's- Ending newborn. Sure, yep. Uh, (laughs) For for me, it sounds like a train, like, ah, it's oncoming. (laughs) I think for those giving birth, it is like a train. (laughs) I've been told, I don't know. So uh, the woman stated that she had worked out for Michael to get a better job. And this was really going to help the family. This was all really good news. They're getting assistance. They're getting an opportunity to improve their situation. Mm -hmm. And so Julia said that she wanted to take the, the little ones to the nearby store and get them some clothes and some shoes and help get them ready. And at this point, she has developed... A level of trust with his family. Right. She's given them money. Right. She's helping them get a better job. Mm-hmm. They leave. She leaves the, the younger one, Anastasia, 11 months, uh, with the family. Uh, but she takes Mary Agnes to go get clothes and shoes. Catherine is kind of reluctant about this, but this woman is helping them out. And she's already given them money. And so she's feeling a little pressured. And so she's like, okay, you can take... Mary Agnes. Whenever you say their names, all I can picture is Mary Catherine Gallagher. (laughs) Superstar. Uh Uh-huh. Julia Otis did not return with Mary Agnes that night. Shocker. I know, right? The next day, though, um, I'm sure very distressed, they received a letter from Julia. And it said, please don't be alarmed. I've taken your little girl to California with me. Oh, my God. Those are two sentences that you can't jam together. Like, don't be alarmed. And also, I've stolen your child. But, she follows up, I've hired a special nurse to care for her and we'll be back in two months. By that time, you'll be on your feet again and you will be able to care for her. Don't even cry a bit. She's outfitted like a princess. And in the meantime, I'll still help get you guys on your feet. Well, that all sounds good. Don't worry about her or anything else. When you get this letter, we'll already be on our way. Which is kind of like, don't bother trying to get her back because we're gone. Don't bother notifying the authorities. They wait for another letter for some sort of update. You know, they've they've reached out to uh, people and the the social service agency. They're not getting information about this Julia Otis. They don't know who she is. They're very concerned. Oh, my. However, two weeks goes by and they get another letter. Allegedly from a woman named Alice Henderson, who, if you remember the name Henderson, it was the name that Julia Otis gave when she said that she was sent from the service. Okay. Alice Henderson stated that uh, Otis was her cousin, and she was 
quote unquote, love hungry because her own husband and baby had died the year before. Okay. So authorities are taking a look at these letters and the handwriting looks identical. Oh, wow. Yeah. So as you can imagine, that's a little concerning on its own. It's like, oh, so not only has this lady stolen our baby, she's pretending to be another woman. Uh, and I mean, it's is it, it's getting real creepy. Yeah. First thing that pops into my mind, multiple, multiple personalities. personalities. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I thought that too, um, for sure. Although from what I'm told, and we did an episode on this way back when, Oftentimes, it's it's not uncommon when uh, people will go from one personality to another. Their handwriting does change. That's true. Completely. That is the last time anyone reached out to the family oh. about Mary Agnes. Oh, my God. So They must have been frantic. Days, weeks, months, years go by. Oh, my God. Nothing. Which, of course, is terrifying. Um, and uh, in the meantime, the family obviously trying to get back to their to some sort of normalcy. And Catherine's having more babies. And uh, they get to a point where obviously you have to kind of continue living your life. You don't move on necessarily or you don't accept that she's gone. But you, you have to live your life. You have to keep putting one foot ahead of the other. Especially when you have other children. So in... July of 1931, an older woman named Martha Thompson was found pushing a cart uh, near a circus. Uh, her, she was Native American, and this cart that she had contained a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, three-year-old girl that matched Mary Agnes's description. Thompson maintained that the girl was abandoned by her mother, whose name was Florence Fuller, and uh, begged to be allowed to keep her. Authorities were very suspicious, though, because, well... Obviously, uh, you know, authorities were always suspicious of Native Americans in 1931. Especially those who were circus folk. So, but anyway, um, it was brought to the attention of the Maronis, and they did not identify this little girl as their kid. Hmm. Um, so, again, uh, that sucks. Yep. And uh, But it, it was at a time, 1931, where a lot of families were in distress and a lot of kids were kind of just being passed around. And sold. Yes, yes, which is terrifying. So that was a real bummer because you think that there's a lead on your kid and turns out, no, in 1952, a 24-year-old housewife named Mary. 52. 52, yes. So 20 years later. 20 years later. A young woman comes forward, claims that she has looked at photos of Mary Agnes's siblings uh, because six more were born after Holy uh, she was kidnapped. Wow. And looking back at her history, she had been adopted within a year of Mary Agnes's disappearance. And uh, she studied uh, details about the case. And she thought maybe she was Mary Agnes. Oh, a physician, however, stated that he delivered this woman to another woman in 1927, and her mother had provided a baby picture of her daughter dating from 1928, which proved that she had been adopted two years before the abduction, and Mary Agnes had undergone an operation for a ruptured navel. This woman didn't have a scar that would have lined up with that. Right. So again, it's another opportunity for... 
the family to think maybe this is it. And in fact, Catherine had said, yes, this could be my daughter. And it turns out that's not the case. Further DNA testing proved that she was not, in fact, Mary Agnes. They had DNA testing back then? No. It's DNA testing later on. Oh, later on. Okay. In, in time. Yeah. So we know now for sure that, that she's not. That, that is not Mary Agnes. Though I will say, looking at photos, they do look similar, but everyone from the 1950s looks the same to me. Because um, they were all in black and white. <laughs> that may have something Very low, to do with low it. Low resolution. For sure. Mm. Um, so the family, like I said, continued doing family things, but never gave up hope looking for her. And every time there was a lead, they investigated. Um, However, even though this was covered uh, both locally and nationally, the whereabouts of Mary Agnes Moroni were never ascertained. And her kidnapping is the oldest unsolved case of this nature in the files of the Chicago Missing Persons Bureau. Holy crap. 1930. You would think with uh, the vast DNA database Mm. that we have access to now, like the John Doe Project that we talked about, um, or even just Ancestry.com, you'd be able to get some kind of a lead. Well, you look at just with um, Embark, the tests that we've done on the the, the the pugs, Mm -hmm. we know about relatives that they have across the nation, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is... Crazy. And I know that this is one of the reasons that a lot of people are kind of hesitant to get involved with DNA testing uh, because they don't, they don't want their family yeah. secrets known. Right. Um, but it's also how crimes are being solved. It is. And, uh, you know, it's mm. hard to not be excited about that. It is true, though. You kind of feel like, what kind of can of worms am I opening here by mm. submitting my DNA to, to the database? For example, my brother in law. He got a call out of the blue Mm. from a younger girl and she had done a DNA test. She was adopted and she, you know, had no record of parents who they were. And she got a hit with my brother-in-law. And so he just gets this call (laughs) out of the blue going, um, hi, here's the thing. And he knew that it wasn't him. So he asked his brothers. He, had a, he has a few brothers, mm-hmm. and it turns out that this child was his brothers from a romantic tryst one summer. Uh, wow! Yeah, in a, in a in a cottage in northern Maine. <laughs> How romantic! <laughs> mm, mm. Lovely. Yep. And his brother didn't have any idea. Oh wow! But they're united now, and um, they have a relationship, and it's it's. It turned out well, but it was kind of shocking for my brother-in-law to get that call. <laughs> Excuse uh, me. What? <laughs> Not to mention how my sister must have felt. Right. <laughs> what? Hey. Pardon me. Excuse. Excuse me. Well, the 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 sad thing about this is even with the the movements that we're making with understanding of DNA and the the huge database that we have now. Mary Agnes has been missing for 89 years. Holy crap. So at this point, yeah. it's getting really unlikely that we're going to solve this mystery because mm. people are dying mm. pretty rapidly. At the same time, if she had children, then there is the possibility they might be able to track that mitochondrial DNA, which is the maternal side. Sure. Um, so there is still hope. Sure. The mystery wouldn't be solved for her, though. Not for her or for... Um, or her family. Or her family. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's kind of a bummer. Sorry about that. Oops. And now, that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle, Sonia posted to our Freaks, a Box of Oddities group, what are some of the nicknames you have for customers, coworkers, or family? Oh, this is a good one. <laughs> Number five, Sonia responds to her own post. This is my sister in my phone. Little fucking riding jockstrap. <laughs> Number four, Chris contributes... We have loads of names for customers at our place. The Incredible Talking Man, Blue Nose Bob, Fuck Off With Your Fish, Don't You Come In, Super Drive, The Big Donut, and finally, Get a Bath. Number three, Virginia writes, Drunk Terry, Scrapper Guy, Divorce Chick, Doggy Dumbass, and Single Lady. I want to know what kind of business she works in. Jim writes, freaky hand washer guy, because he walks into the restroom, turns on the water in the sink, walks into a stall, gets two very specific length pieces of toilet paper. He then spends no less than five minutes washing his hands in the sink, leaving a mound of suds overflowing all the time, whistling. And no, I have no idea what the toilet paper is for. It's like a train wreck. You can't stop watching. No, I'd have to watch that. I'd rather watch that than people not washing their hands. That is very true. Which I've seen multiple occasions. And number one, Therese writes, Owl Woman is an older lady who <laughs> regularly came into the hair salon I worked at. She wanted her hair colored golden like when she was young because back then, when I went into the woods, my hair was so yellow all the owls wanted to nest in it. <laughs> what? I want to know this chick. I don't think it's got to do with the yellowness. I'm confused. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. 
Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You know that feeling of coming up with a really clever liner to separate blocks of a podcast? Yeah, yeah, neither, neither do we. This is The Box of Oddities. Received this Facebook message from Tracy, and she said, Had thyroid cancer and needed surgery. Dr. Richard Seaman was my ENT, ear, nose, and throat guy, who did the surgery. They pumped me full of liquid Valium. And were pushing me down the hall to the OR. My last coherent thought and my last out loud comment was, lovely, I'm going to have Dick Seaman in my throat. Surgery was delayed for a half an hour so they could get it back together again. (laughs) I cannot be held responsible for being unable to control what comes out of my mouth when looped on liquid Valium. I barely hold shreds of my filter together as it is. Thanks, Tracy. You're the best. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. I hope you are, because by my rubbing my hands together enthusiastically, it means I hope you're ready. Oh, yep. That is what that means. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Or the, I'm peeing. Yeah, we've talked about that before. Cat <laughs> <laughs> rubs her hands together before she urinates every time. At work, I have to do it so quietly. <laughs> <clears throat> So your nickname would be... (laughs) Rubs her hands while she pees. Hand-rubbing peer, maybe. Maybe. Um, Okay. In the fall of 1869, Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols were a couple of uh, well diggers. They were hired by a guy named William William Newell to dig a well next to his barn. Okay. So three feet down, they hit stone or what they thought was stone, when they cleared the dirt away, 
What they saw was a human foot. Oh, no. Local uh, newspapers at the time quoted one of the one of the well diggers as saying, I declare some old Indian has been buried here. Oh, okay. I want to work I declare into my conversation on a regular basis. That That's so charming. I would agree. It may seem a little out of place in modern day conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I declare there are so many appetizers to choose from on this menu. I declare my smartwatch isn't working well. Anyway, the well diggers uh, continued to dig because that what's, that's what well diggers do. Mm-hmm. They eventually unearthed the whole body, but it took them a lot longer than they thought because the body was 10 feet tall. What? Well, he was lying down, so I guess technically 10 feet wide, but... If you stood him up, he would have been about 10 feet tall. And he was a petrified guy, almost beyond mummified. Whoa. He would become known as the Cardiff Giant. Ah, the Cardiff Giant. The Giant had not been reduced to a skeleton, but had been petrified and um, now appeared to be made entirely out of stone. You could see his ribs. You could see an Adam's apple, skin pores. Even kind of a benevolent smile, all apparently in this stone figure. In fact, you can see his penis, too. And he appears to be circumcised. Well, if you can see pores, I would hope that you could see his penis. Yeah. Especially if he was 10 feet tall. So Newell, the guy who owned the farm, immediately, uh, as one would do, opened up the giant's tomb for viewing. People came from all over. Carriages, buses. Horse riders. Now, of course, buses at the time were horse-drawn, more like trolleys. Sure. Buggies all over to see what religious scholars were calling a giant that had perished in Noah's flood. He initially charged 25 cents for entry, quickly doubled it as the roads leading to his farm became choked with with would-be giant gazers. (laughs) Inside the viewing tent, onlookers just stood there in stunned silence. People spoke in whispers, like in reverent tones. Light fell from the center of the tent, according to a a newspaper article, and landed on on the giant laying in his grave. One arm cradled his stomach as if in the throes of a death pain, but his gentle smile was cemented in a state of eternal serenity. America's attention was fixated on this giant. Scientists were consulted, many coming out with explanations on how the giant had become petrified. It didn't take long for the news to really grab hold on this all over the world. Yeah. And people from all over the country left work to go to this farm and see this giant that they had unearthed. Wow. The Syracuse Journal later wrote, women caught up their babies and children in numbers. Women caught up their babies? Women caught up their babies and children in numbers all hurried to the scene where the interest of that little community centered. I mean, that it's probably how it would have sounded sure. if, if they had newscasts back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Early explanations appear to confirm the theory that uh, the body was an ancient man that had been petrified by the waters of a nearby swamp. A Syracuse-based science lecturer later declared the giant was not a man, but rather a statue possibly carved by French Jesuits centuries earlier. So this argument went back and forth. Is it, a, is it an ancient statue? Is it a petrified man? 
And that started to really piss off the uh, the guy who owned the land where they found this dude. So he he said he threatened to like rebury the giant and and like say, okay, nobody can see him now. Oh, oh well. But his neighbors convinced him that uh, the discovery was of historical value. So Cardiff's prehistoric man made uh, a big splash in the news. The Syracuse Daily Standard wrote, A new wonder discovered! Another paper hailed the find as a singular discovery. Crowds continued to grow. About 2,500 people came during the exhibition's first week at his farm. And uh, he had offers to sell the giant. And he he said, no, I'm not not doing that. But a syndicate of businessmen offered him $30,000 for three-fourths stake. In his giant. Oh, he wanted to buy stocks in the giant. Pretty much. And this was in 1869, so 30 grand in 1869. Are you kidding me? So Newell sold. Yeah. Um, eventually, they moved the giant to Syracuse for exhibition. The giant drew such large crowds there that P.T. Barnum offered them $50,000 to buy this giant in 1869. So when this uh, syndicate of businessmen refused... P.T. Barnum just hired a guy to make a copy of it yeah, and then claimed that his was the real one and theirs was fake. That's some bullshit. Yeah. As the newspapers uh, reported Barnum's version of the story, the owner of the farm who originally found this giant said, there's a sucker born every minute in reference to spectators paying to see Barnum's giant. Since then, that quotation has been uh, misattributed to Barnum himself. No. That wasn't actually Barnum? No, it was this farmer who found this giant in his field. Now, is that true? Or did the farmer say that he was the original one to have said that when really it was a P.T. Barnum quote? Wow. Mm -hmm. You're on to something there. Up is down. Black is white. Mm -hmm. Evil is good. So the farmer sued Barnum for calling his giant a fake, but the judge told him to get his giant to swear in his own in court if he wanted a, a favorable injunction, so they dismissed the uh, that case. Um, That's not cool. No. Oh, probably the judge was influenced by... P.T. Barnum. Yep. So on December 10th in 1869, a guy named, his last name was Hall, came forward and said, he told the press that both giants were actually fake and that he had played a part in forging the original giant that started this whole thing. The statue was a forgery planted there by George Hall, who was a friend of Newell, who owned the farm. Both men were in on the hoax. The idea came to Hall. He he was an atheist. He had been uh, traveling and, and arguing with a priest for hours about literal interpretations of the Bible. And Hall lie awake all night that evening trying to think of the most ridiculous thing people would believe and eventually came up with the idea of the Cardiff giant. In the Bible, it says in Genesis 6, verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. So Hall spent... The next two years, and about $3,000 creating this phony giant. He began by traveling to Fort Dodge, Iowa, where he secured a five-ton block of gypsum by claiming it would be used for a statue of the late Abraham Lincoln. He then shipped the slab to a Chicago marble dealer who had agreed to help with the scheme in exchange for a piece of the profits. 
with Hull posing as a model, um, the sculptor spent the late summer of 1868 fashioning this block of gypsum into an artificial anthropological wonder. They then dosed the exterior of the statue with sulfuric acid to make it look old and eroded. Mm-hmm. And he and Hull even like drove pins into the body to replicate the pores. Right. Wow. I'm just picturing this farmer posing like one of those French girls on a small sofa in a conservatory as a, a, a marble <laughs> sculptor <laughs> yep. uh, recreates the look into stone. It gets very sexy is all I'm saying. I understand. Yeah. This thing weighed about 3,000 pounds. This is elaborate just because he was irritated. Yeah, because he was pissed off about this debate he was having. (laughs) So he needed a place to bury his giant. He settled on Cardiff, New York, a small valley town, happened to be the home of a distant relative and the farmer, William Newell. So he cut Newell in on the deal. By swearing him to secrecy, mm-hmm. they shipped the giant. He shipped the giant to his property in an iron sealed box, and then um, on uh, in November, a night in November in 1868, the men buried this statue near uh, Newell's barn. And what they did was they they wedged it under tree roots and stuff to make it look like it had been there for a long time. That must have been so much work. I would think so. Upstate New York in November. No, thank you. Yeah. After that, Hall went back to uh, his cigar business. He ran a cigar business. He let a year go by before he finally wrote to Newell and said, okay, let's pull the pins on this and bring the giant to life. So on October 16th, 1869, Newell put the plan into play. He hired those two unsuspecting well diggers, and um, that's what happened. Wow. So a newspaper in Chicago at about the same time printed uh, the confession from the uh, the, sh- the sculptor. Mm-hmm. He said that he was involved in this. The American Goliath's proprietors continued exhibiting the statue for a few years to dwindling crowds. By 1880, it had been condemned to a to storage in a barn in Massachusetts. Is it still out there? Is it available to see now? Is it yeah, still a it's, thing? It's still around. But after that happened, people said, oh, you know, it's a hoax. Okay, whatever. Another discovery was made, this time in the mountains of Colorado. The solid Muldoon is what they called it. It was another giant. And this one, they were suspecting that, you know, it was a hoax. So they um, they cut into it and they found petrified flesh and bones inside. And so this went on tour and, and made a lot of money too, but... It turned out to be a hoax perpetrated by George Hall, the same guy. Wow. See, he had learned from his, his mistake before, and this time he had made his, uh, his statue out of a mixture of dust, clay, plaster, bones, and, and blood and meat. Sure. Yeah. You got to get some real meat in there <laughs> yeah. if you're going to fake a giant. By this time, this became a craze. It was in full force. Petrified men were popping up all over the place. Hotels, roadside stands. These people began cooking up their own giants as marketing stunts. <laughs> None, of course, held up under scrutiny. Now on display, meaty fake giants. <laughs> so this guy made about $20,000 on the Cardiff giant scheme. He would later attempt to continue, but he didn't have a whole lot of success after that. And he died in obscurity in uh, 1902. 
supposedly, supposedly still proud of uh, once, quote, fooling the world with the Cardiff Giant. The Cardiff Giant was displayed at the 1901 American Exp- or Pan American Exposition, but did not attract much attention. Then an Iowa publisher, a guy named Gardner Cowles Jr., bought it to adorn his basement rumpus room as a coffee table and a conversation piece. And there it stayed until 1947. Then he sold it to the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York, which is where it is today. Oh, wow. So that's where you can find it. The Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York, home of the baseball. We want to go there anyway. Hall of Fame. Yes. Yep. Now, what about Barnum's version of it? The owner of Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum, which is a coin-operated game arcade and museum of oddities in Farmington Hills, Michigan, says that uh, the replica that Barnum displayed is actually there. They have the replica. Oh, that sounds like fun, too. And then there is another replica that was made later. Um, That giant is displayed at the Fort Museum in Frontier Village in Fort Dodge, Iowa. So in a way, people are still paying to see this thing. Sure. (laughs) I got my information from Ripley's Believe It or Not, History.com and Wikipedia. The Cardiff Giant, everyone. I love it. I think that's terribly interesting, but I cannot, for the life of me, understand the behavior that leads to hoaxes like this. Like, nothing in my brain says, hey, let's try to trick people. Yeah. Well, like, this guy was just... motivated because he lost an argument, or he yeah. felt like he had lost an argument to a, a preacher. That's still, <laughs> um, that's crazy. Yeah, it's kind of nutty. And really, looking at a picture of the Cardiff giant um, really brings forward in my mind how stupid people were back in the 1860s, because no. it doesn't look anything like a um, like a petrified man. It looks like a badly chiseled statue. Well, giants would have looked differently. I suppose. Here's a picture. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that fooled the world. Wow. Mm, we'll post that. Arms so long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> not the only thing. Um, oh. So anyway, there you go. Wow. That was like the golden age of um, hucksterism. Yeah, what was going on? That's something I would really like to explore a little bit is the emotional and mental state of the nation that led to Mm. that kind of continued behavior, like over and over again. People were just so excited to see things that were not real. Yeah, well, I think it was a combination of things. I think that uh, science and technology Uh, At the time, they were making great advances. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amazing inventions were being um, brought forward. Also, it was right after the Civil War, and people wanted a diversion. Okay. People wanted to escape reality. Also, maybe something like lead paint or something. You know, (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying it may have been some sort of damage. (laughs) When we were talking to uh, the um, reporter from the Connecticut Post about our upcoming show in Bridgeport, uh, Connecticut, at the historic Bijou Theater, uh, she mentioned that uh, the P.T. Barnum Museum is in Bridgeport. So we're going to have to go to to that. I think that's pretty obvious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And if you would like to go to the show in Bridgeport or our next upcoming show, which is in a couple of weeks at the D.C. Comedy Loft. Tickets to both shows are available on our website. 
theboxofoddities.com. We love you guys, and we look forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. That was a good one, sweetie. Mm, you're a good one, sweetie. Thanks. Can't even believe how good you are. What? Mm-hmm, you heard me. I got a scratch or something on my arm. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.